Rugged individualism occupies the heart of American mythology. We pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We ignore structural inequality and rely on our can-do attitudes. We take on the personal shame of job loss or bankruptcy or health struggles. And we unquestionably accept that to make it in America, all we need to do is work hard. Are we happier and is our society stronger for our self-reliance? Or does individualism exacerbate the political, social, and interpersonal issues that cause us all so much pain? And in what ways do we collude with this toxic myth as we lead and support others around us? I'm Rebecca Ching, and you're listening to The Unburdened Leader, the show that goes deep with humans who navigate life's challenges and lead in their own ways. Our goal is to learn how they address the burdens they carry, how they learn from them, and become better and more impactful leaders of themselves and others. Racism, sexism, ableism, and all forms of oppression might seem like different problems all in need of their own solutions, but shifting our dependence on the myth of individualism offers the start of a solution to all of them. When we address and heal the burden of individualism, we start to see beyond our own needs and the myth that we can do it all on our own if we try hard enough. Because individualism thrives on self-reliance and so many of us grew up on a healthy dose of this message, which leads us to believe needing others is deeply, deeply flawed. And our innate value becomes tied to our personal accomplishments, or lack thereof, which is based on a flawed narrative that what we achieve is based solely on our effort, conquering, and achieving. I'm like feeling this. This is like so my childhood. (laughs) This way of living permeates our culture too, weighing us down and pitting us against each other as we fight for what is hours with air quotes around that, and following a so-called mandate to overcome any challenges we face in the world and within ourselves. As a result, individualism blocks our capacity to lead with vulnerability and sit with discomfort, difference, and conflict. And it also blocks our ability to experience connection and intimacy, which are the spaces in which we heal and see our own humanity and the humanity in those around us. So when struggles surface like doubt and fear, we go to great lengths to hide this pain and end up suffering in silence, often seeing our struggles as a personal moral failing. And if we dare to share our pain, and I'm cringing as I share this, but we often receive responses that tell us we need to work on our upper limit problem or fix our self-sabotage. Again, reinforcing that all the problems we have are solely an individual's responsibility. Now, I deeply value personal agency, but the messages of these common self-help responses leave us feeling worse. And if we fail to break through our upper limit, we're left feeling defeated, feeling shame and blame towards ourselves and others. And this individualistic self-help lens is not trauma-informed, and instead traumatizes, only further entrenching the cultural burden of individualism when we look at growing personally and professionally. 
Now, I'm really grateful for this special leadership roundtable conversation today on the podcast where my guests look at how addressing the cultural burden of individualism is a powerful place to start when looking to also address the cultural burdens of racism, sexism, and consumerism. Duran Young is a licensed therapist specializing in racial trauma and legacy burdens. She is also co-author of the New York Times bestseller, You Are Your Best Thing. And she's also a retired military officer and founder of Black Therapist Rock. And Black Therapist Rock is an amazing organization. It's a nonprofit with a network of over 30,000 mental health professionals committed to reducing the psychological impact of systemic oppression and intergenerational trauma. And I'm so thrilled to welcome back Dr. Richard Schwartz to the podcast. And he began his career as a systemic family therapist and an academic. Grounded in systems thinking, Dr. Schwartz developed internal family systems, otherwise known as IFS, in response to clients' descriptions of various parts within themselves. He focused on the relationships among these parts and noticed that there were systemic patterns to the way they were organized across his clients. And he also found that when clients' parts felt safe and were allowed to relax, the client would experience spontaneously the qualities of confidence, openness, and compassion that Dr. Schwartz came to call the self. And he found that when in the state of self, clients would know how to heal their parts. And Dr. Schwartz is also a featured speaker for national professional organizations and has published many books, including his latest book, No Bad Parts, along with over 50 articles about IFS. Now listen for Dick's connection between the cultural burden of individualism and trauma. And notice when Duran shares how individualism leaves us feeling like we're on our own to figure everything out. And pay attention to when Dick talks about clarity as the opposite of denial when identifying the cultural burdens we carry. Now, please welcome Duran Young and Dr. Richard Schwartz to the Unburdened Leader podcast. You all are in for a treat today. Please welcome back Dick Schwartz to the Unburdened Leader podcast and Duran Young. Welcome to the Unburdened Leader for this really special roundtable. Thank you for having us. Great to be with you again, Rebecca. Great to be with you too, Dorian. Really looking forward to digging in. And I'd, I'd just like to start off, Dick, uh, talking about these the four cultural legacy burdens that you've written about, that they don't only show up in us individually, but also show up in our businesses, our organizations, and yes, our government. <laughs> you, you identified them as racism, patriarchy, materialism, and individualism. And I would love for you to walk me through how to identify and address these burdens in larger systems. Well, for me, they're all kind of related, and and they're all related to trauma, actually. So how to identify them? Some of them are pretty evident and easy to identify, and then some are much more subtle. And so if we take, for example, individualism, which, you know, I like to make the analogy of an individual to our country, for example, how in IFS, uh, people have had a lot of trauma, wind up with a lot of what we call exiles, which tend to be the parts that feel very weak and worthless and, and terrified and hurt. And any individual who has a lot of exiles is going to have a lot of 
protectors and will have a lot of disdain for their exiles and will try their best to keep them exiled. And if you rip that, if you take that and apply it to a country, any country with a history of a lot of trauma and then also with a lot of exiles is going to have a lot of extreme uh, protectors. And the United States now has probably more exiles than it's ever had. I think I heard recently that 60% of the population lives paycheck to paycheck. Mm. And so not only are there a lot of exiles, but there's a huge gap. So there's lots and lots of rich people too. And, and there is this, this constant sense among the exiles of resentment about that, of course. So people like Donald Trump become embodiments of all four of those, uh, four of those legacy burdens. And kind of ironically, many of the exiles are drawn to lean toward that protector. So these are all persistent and pernicious. And if I were to focus on one for now, it would be individualism and how both in individuals who suffer a lot of trauma and in countries like ours, that manifests as look out for number one and you can't trust anybody else. And, uh, and those key to being strong and making it is willpower. Mm. And so if you don't have willpower, then you're weak and you're, you're disdained. And if you're failing, it's because you don't have willpower. And that's really pervasive. And then that whole thing feeds racism because historically traumatized population may not succeed as well because of the legacy burdens it carries and then is seen as weak and lazy and doesn't have enough willpower. And so I'm trying to tie those two together. Yeah, and you could do the same with, with uh, patriarchy. And then materialism is also the sense that because it's a sense of fear of never having enough because you never know when something terrible is going to happen again, which is a trauma-based kind of thing too. You know, I saw a study, I think, it was a survey of people who average income was $16 million. And they were asked, you know, do you feel secure? And they'd say no. And what would it take for you to feel secure? It was like $64 million. So there's this abiding sense of insecurity that uh, that drives materialism also. And all of these both are, as is true with individuals, self-reinforcing because the more you look out for number one and you don't look out for other people, you don't care about other people, and the more you feel rejected and, and then the more you got to do that. And the same is true for countries. So anyway, I'm just rattling on, but um, yeah, for me, they're all interconnected. And the important thing is to identify them in ourselves because you can't grow up in this country without some degree of each of them. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we can talk more about what to do once you've identified them. Yeah, I mean, in, in our foundations in systems theory, systems are made up of individuals. And mm-hmm. so that makes a lot of sense. Duran, I'd, I'd love for your thoughts 
too, on how you and your work um, identify and address these burdens in larger systems. Yeah, being, as you kind of said earlier, being in IFS, you gain a lot of skills that you can take wherever you go. Um, I feel so honored that I was able to um, be in the IFS community as, um, you know, kind of as a diversity consultant who could see different parts of things, um, who could learn different parts of the system, um, different parts of the community, what what parts are needing what, you know. Um, and I was able to take that that learned skill into my work with Brene Brown, which I know a lot of your work is based off because you're also certified in Daring Way. Um, so I got certified in Daring Way in 2017. I got certified in IFS like maybe six months later. <laughs> so it was a lot of overlap um, around shame and vulnerability in these parts. Like I said, I initially started working with Brene as a, a partnership through Black Therapist Rock. And she then brought me on as one of the diversity uh, consultants on her team for the, her, to write her diversity mission statement. So that was really amazing. And that was all before George Floyd died. After George Floyd died, uh, there were other opportunities like my, um, the opportunity for me to write the chapter in You Are Your Best Thing, which is now a New York Times bestseller. So I've been writing, I feel like, a lot about shame and intergenerational trauma and these cultural burdens, but I also see them show up in everyday life. You know, as a Black woman raising a Black boy, I see them a lot in our public school systems. Um, you know, patriarchy, even if, you know, it's ran by women, we're kind of running it in a very dominant masculine way. Um, I love that Brene is also a feminist theory, so it's taught me another lens to see the world through because all of my training up until you know, now my retirement in the military up until that point, everything was very masculinized. Um, you know, I learned a lot about trauma and um, CBT and CPT, a lot about the cognitive framework of understanding everything, but not really necessarily understanding how or how to value the heart, really. And I feel like mm -hmm. Brene has really helped me understand from a feminist perspective that the heart is really important to value, that we have to value um you know, what people bring to work with them that's on their heart, whether it's, you know, whether we feel like it's connected to their performance at work or not, it, it almost always is. So to see that these parts show up at work, you know, they show up in organizations. And I have now become my first degree, actually, my first master's degree is in public administration with a focus on human resources. So I'm getting to really integrate my, experience, my experiences in the military when I was enlisted I'm getting to, to really integrate that organizational way of thinking, the systems way of thinking, um, and seeing mm -hmm. parts of organizations, which parts are not working or which parts are not being seen, which parts are not being heard. Um, there's oftentimes very, you know, very various groups of people within an organization who feel like they need to be advocated for or their, mm -hmm. or their needs are not being met as far as showing up and being seen. Um, so lately, I've been focusing on uh, working with organizations as a consultant, doing equity work and belonging. I tell people I don't really, I don't, I don't really um, enjoy diversity work as much because it's like, like Resma says, diversity is a fact. And if we're at the point where we're just now recognizing that you have different types of people in your organization, you have a long way to go, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but if you realize, like, I have different people and I, they have different needs and I don't know what I don't know, that's usually when I'm, I'm happy to be there to say, okay, here are some things that I see and here are some things that could help, you know, this, this population or these parts of the organization run a little better. 
And I, I see cultural burdens in every single organization. I think a lot of the leaders or founders of these organizations are surprised that not me, you know, it could never happen in my organization. There's no racism here. Mm-hmm. Everybody wants to believe that racism is out there. It is definitely not in here, not inside of me, not in my home, you know, not in my company, but it's everywhere. We're swimming in it and we don't even know we're wet. So mm-hmm. I, I get to go and point out some things that they probably haven't seen. It could be difficult sometimes um, unless there's a crisis like one of the clients I'm working with right now. If there's a crisis, it's very obvious, you know, um, and that's that's an opportunity for everyone to grow and learn as well. So I just uh, I, I feel really honored to do the work that I do and to meet the leaders that I meet. And um, I feel like IFS has been a core part of my learning and a core part of what I bring to the skills that I've that I've developed. No question. I'm with you on that, too, especially with Brene's work and IFS. Like, I can't do one without the other. <laughs> it's just, they're so fused. I'd, I'd love for you both to speak a little bit more specifically, because I know there's leaders listening to this going, okay, racism, patriarchy, materialism, individualism. Yeah, I, I don't want that. I don't want to be that. I don't want that in my space. And I'm wondering if you could talk through how folks can work through these burdens instead of maybe the more common reflex to fear them or just try to, you know, get rid of them, or as we say in IFS, exile them. But I'd love for you to, you know, talk a little bit more specifically how you work with leaders or how leaders can work through these instead of trying to just get rid of them, deny them or exile them. For me, I think the first thing is coming out of denial, you know, in 12 step, I go to a lot of 12 steps meetings and uh, in one 12 step meeting, I heard that denial stands for don't even notice I am lying. Oh, you know, so I, oh. it's really like this ignorance, this not wanting to know, you know, this this uh, avoidance, like you said, or exiling of things that we, we we've seen as children. That's one thing I also think is really interesting. My son, you know, he plays with a very diverse group of children and they, they're at our house all the time. So we have Egyptian children at our house. We have Indian children. Lots of Asian children here because he's into anime and, you know, just different things that are culturally different from most African-American boys. Um, and what I see is that the children don't, they don't care. They don't care what how much money you have. They don't care if you're a boy or a girl. Are you into the same? Are you Do you play Roblox or not? That's, you know, do we have common interests? Um, they, they don't care about, you know racism or, or any of these things when I watch them playing together is so pure and innocent and sweet. And I think that just, it reminds me of how connected we are as human beings, that like we always have things in common if we're, if we're wanting to find that common ground. Um, and so I think that as children, we notice things and we, we're, we're forced to kind of put those things away. Or our parents tell us that we're not seeing it. We're not seeing what we think we see. You know, a, a lot of it is just conditioning, I think. Um, but I always have to remind myself that it's human nature to be connected to other humans. And the things that disconnect us are, are elements of protection, our parts. Those are our protectors trying to push something away or push something back that's too painful or overwhelming to think about or feel. And so I think our country has been pushing this, this stuff back. You know, we haven't been talking about patriarchy. We haven't been talking about racism or materialism. And I think it's mainly because of individualism. It's like everyone's on their own, figure it out. And if you're not figuring it out, it's because something's wrong with you. Mm-hmm. So I, I think these protectors, you know, really just being that's where the shame and the vulnerability work has come in for me as well. It's like sitting with the shame of of not knowing for so many years or not not wanting to go you know, to to face these things for so many years. And the shame underneath why why we didn't um, underneath those protectors, if you will, are those exiles, but also vulnerability like it's 
it's a <laughs> in an individualistic world, it's really challenging to be vulnerable, to be emotionally vulnerable when we're told to be, you know, rugged, to be hard, to be tough all the time. And all of the advertising that we see, you know, the Marvel movies, like everything celebrates being tough, being armored, being indestructible. And that doesn't really go with mm-hmm. vulnerability. Um, so just seeing that, you know, just seeing all of those things that people have real reasons why they're afraid to be vulnerable and to at least acknowledge that the fear is there and then that these things are there and that the denial is what keeps us from seeing it. You mentioned that, you know, we haven't been talking about these things. I will say, though, that there have been a lot of activists I'm learning that have been talking about these mm-hmm. things for a long time, but just now those in power and dominant culture are waking up <laughs> to these things. So I want to I want to make sure to know that. But when someone, when one of your clients is showing up in denial around one of these cultural legacy burdens, how do you work with that with them when they're just terrified of being identified? And I see this with a lot of folks in white bodies, uh, terrified of being identified as racist uh, or sexist, um, you know, and say, I love everybody. What do you, what, how do you work? How do you help them work through that, especially through your IFS lens? I will say that Dick has really taught me, like, it's, it's helpful to see something as a part. Mm -hmm. Uh, When it's all of you, it feels overwhelming. It feels, you know, you get defensive. It feels, uh, you know, like crushing a little bit. I think when you, when I point at someone says you are a racist, but if I say a part of you is racist, that's easier to digest for whatever reason. I, I think it, maybe it's because then, your dignity is still intact. You know, your character, right, your dignity is right. still intact. Um, who you are as a being is still present. Um, and so I really love the both and model too. It's like, yes, you love everyone and a part of you is racist. <laughs> so what do you think, Dick? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree with everything you're saying. Uh, you know, Brene makes this distinction that I think is important between shame and guilt. And that shame implies you're a bad person and guilt implies you've done bad, something bad that you need to be accountable for. Yeah. And so much of denial is because you're so afraid of being shamed. And, and the parts that carry that level of shame and worthlessness are terrifying, sort of viscerally, because we all know if, if we're worthless, as children, we, we knew this inherently, that we would die. So there's a kind of survival terror that comes with shame. Mm-hmm. And so the denying parts are a natural reaction to that possibility. And from my point of view, too many activists try to use shame to mm-hmm. uh, to get people to change, and it really backfires. And so, yeah, as you were saying, Duran, number one, the idea that it's just a part, not the, not the word just to minimize its influence or the problem with its behavior, but that it isn't all of you. It, is, it doesn't define your character uh, is a big relief to many people and, and, and frees them up to be able to talk about that part because you can't grow up in this culture without having some level of white supremacy belief system. You know, in, in people of color, that can manifest as self hate in white people that manifests as white supremacy. And, mm. and so then what do you do with it? And what do you do with the part? So unfortunately, 
for me, too often, the anti-racism approach has been to try to get people to either lock it away again or um, it, it's a kind of cognitive, just argue with it, whatever comes up, which, you know, is better than than blending with it. But my advocacy is to help people focus on the racists, the part that carries that burden of racism that manifests as, you know, thoughts about people of color and go to it with curiosity and begin to unburden in the way we do with all kinds of other burdens. And, uh, and once you can do that, uh, you don't have to wrestle with it so much because it's not so much in your system. And, but like Duran is saying, to get to that point where you can act actually go and get curious about it and try to help it transform, you have to get over this terror shame. That requires an immense, uh, an increase in capacity for vulnerability. And yeah. that in itself is, is the pre-work. I, and I don't, you know, with some of the language we use in IFS, right, is we, we befriend these parts, right? And I've got some clients who are like, um, no, I'm not befriending racism. I'm like, no, you're not befriending racism. You're befriending, you're befriending this part of you that's holding this worldview so you can get to know it and help it transform. Um, I'm wondering if you would add to any of that in that process, because again, it's still there's, you know, just and what comes, I want to talk a little more about polarities that come up around, uh, you know, I, I want to do this, but I don't want to do this too. So how do we, you know, navigate the polarity around moving through these cultural burdens? Can I also say something that I I often yeah. um, emphasize is that self-energy. Like you said, vulnerability can be really hard in the beginning and helping folks get to know their self or extending our own self-energy to them. Um, I sometimes get a, a lot of flack for being kind to people in the face of, you know, racial events um, in organizations or, you know, things that are happening, power dynamics in organizations. I'll purposely try to be curious about it or you know, extend my compassion for how hard it is for leaders in general to help, to mm -hmm. hold so many responsibilities and things like that. And I think um, just getting folks in tune with their own self-energy or feeling it from you can feel really different and invite more mm -hmm. vulnerability, more connection, really. So I always mm -hmm. try to remember to take my eight C's everywhere I go, you know, uh, and make sure that I'm not operating from a part of me that has internalized racism, you know, or internalized yeah. white supremacy culture. That's another big piece of my work is helping, you know, BIPOC professionals really see themselves as more than just their color, you know, that they are, they too are mm -hmm. human and have uh, a common humanity that's worth being valued and honored. Um, and so getting them to see some of the parts of them that they may not have noticed are there because they, they used it to survive. You know, parts are about survival. So when you said, you know, you're befinging the little part of you that that held that that worldview, we also have to remember that legacy burden things that are passed down and around. And if you're a little mm -hmm. kid and you're swimming in this society that's wet and you don't know that you're wet, you know, you have to extend some compassion to that little one inside that just did what it was told to do, that what it learned to do to survive. Mm -hmm. um, and that's for all of us. We're living in a very sick system. Um, you know, mm -hmm. and so I, I think just having a lot of compassion for what we have to go through every day and what our kiddos are going through and what our system has been through, you know, and, and all of us as part of that system. I appreciate 
you bringing that up, Duran, because a lot of times I hear people conflate curiosity and compassion with kind of complete being complicit or uh, being a walkover. But if I'm hearing you correctly, which I totally agree with, is that when you're accessing that compassion and courage in you for what you just witnessed and what's going on in front of you, that almost co-regulates the system. That not only helps your system get some space, but that's a contagion for the better to the person that you're talking to. Did I hear that right? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's beautiful. Anything you want to add, Dick? What I would add is uh, the Fear of being complicit by being compassionate. Well, you know, Duran talked about compassion and curiosity, and um, there's also courage and clarity and uh, uh, confidence are part of the ACs as well. And so if I were to sit, be with somebody and they said something that was clearly racist, I would still, I would call them out, but I would do it with those three uh, C's, and, and self can be quite forceful, but also with compassion. So, and when you do it, if you if you uh, challenge somebody from that place, it's far, they feel far less shamed because they you sense they sense the compassion that's still there, the sense of connection to them, and the the message isn't that you're a bad person. It's that, okay, you have this blind spot and, uh, and I, I really want you to look at it and work with it, but I still have caring for you. And that's too often what's missing, I think, as Duran was saying, in the, mm -hmm. the activist world. I really appreciate you naming that. I remember you brought that up when you first came on the podcast, Dick, the the forcefulness and the energy of confidence, courage, and clarity, that it isn't this passive. There is a no, not okay, but it's not remiss of connection within and with the other. And it's not led by shame, but it's led by self-leadership. And that's, it's, it's something that's almost, we can talk about it, but it's almost something you have to kind of feel and live through to kind of connect with and yeah. practice with, but it, it's really nuanced in it. But when you're in it, once you have that place, and again, with courage, you can't have courage to me without a little bit of fear or else it's not courage. Mm -hmm. And so there is this point of some vulnerability in that place, but it's standing aligned. Um, and so I think that's something that a lot of leaders wrestle with on how to name those things because they're worried about the backlash from the other or of doing more harm or of, you know, disrupting. And from a place of self-leadership, they're less worried about that than they are of what's right and wrong and by while still holding the relationship. So really appreciate that. Yeah. And since we were talking about denial earlier, clarity is the opposite of denial. And <laughs> so once you've unburdened your denying part and you have that clarity and you you can't help but see injustice and imbalance. And once you see it and, and you have access to courage and also once you see it and you have compassion for the people who are being hurt by the injustice, uh, then you're motivated to act in the outside world. Leading is hard. Leading is also often controversial as you navigate staying aligned to your values, your mission, your boundaries. 
and navigating the inevitable controversy can challenge your confidence, clarity, and calm. Now, I know you don't mind making the hard decisions, but sometimes the stakes seem higher and can bring up echoes of old doubts and insecurities during times when you need to feel rock solid on your plan and action. Finding a coach who gets the nuances of your business and leading in our complex and often polarized world can help you identify the blocks that keep you playing it safe and small. Now, leading today is not a fancy title or fluffy bragging rights. It is brave and bold work to stay the course when the future is so unknown and the doubts and pains from the past keep showing up to shake things up. Internal emotional practices and systemic strategies are needed to keep the protector of cynicism at bay and foster a hope that is both actionable and aligned. So when the stakes are high and you don't want to lose focus, when you want to navigate inevitable conflict between your ears and with those you lead, when time is of the essence and you want to make hard decisions with confidence and clarity, then Unburdened Leader Coaching is for you where you deepen the capacity to tolerate the vulnerability of change, innovation, and doing things differently than the status quo. To start your Unburdened Leader Coaching process with me, go to www.rebeccaching.com and book a free connection call. I can't wait to hear from you. I'd love for you both, if, if your systems will give you permission to share a little bit about how you address the polarities that come up when addressing these cultural legacy burdens, especially as you lead your respective organ- organizations. So you, you know, IFSI for you, Dick, and Black Therapist Rock for you, Duran. I think what's really been helping me lately, when I first came on to Black Therapist Rock as the leader, um, I, I had to acknowledge and realize that it was a part of me that created Black Therapist Rock. It was a very uh, protected, angry, bitter part of me um, that was isolated. I, at the time, I was in I was in the military and I was stationed in Italy, and I just felt culturally isolated. Um, and so that part of me is what kind of created this community of people who needed to connect around cultural identity. Um, I soon realized, though, that the the community needed a leader. <laughs> You know, and if I was just there seeking my own support, then who was going to lead the the community or the organization? So I uh, got trained in Dare to Lead in 2019. And that has really, I've always seen myself as a leader in the military. You know, I received awards and trainings and um, a lot of a lot of support around being a leader in the military. But we lead differently <laughs> in the military versus in the mental health sector, hopefully. Um, and I, I learned in Dare to Lead that who we are is how we lead. And I, at times, I had a polarization in the military that, you know, you couldn't be too soft, you couldn't be too caring, you couldn't be too kind. Um, and so I had really exiled the parts of me that were gentle and compassionate and understanding and saw those as a weakness in the military. And now coming into the mental health space and working with other organizations and other leaders as a Dare to Lead facilitator, um, really, compassion has been my best gift. It's been my get my best leadership quality. Um, and so just going back to the idea that who we are is, is how we lead. And if you're leading from a protector, are you really leading at all? You know, um, if you're not leading from your true self, is that leadership or is it just management? Is it is it a manager that's trying to manage other managers? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. 
Um, so, and it's a lot of work to manage managers as well. I realized I was exuding so much effort and a lot of emotional labor trying to be something different than what I truly was. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I think just being authentic in my leadership has really helped guide me and leading with my heart, knowing that leading with my heart is actually a really good thing that I can love people and I can be with them and learn with them and they can learn from me. And it doesn't have to be this power over dynamic that it can definitely be a power with really empowering yeah. people to me is a, a deeper level of healing. And uh, I take, like I said, I, I take these skills with me everywhere I go now. So I, I feel like I practice the most in my own organization, but then I get to, you know, share that with other leaders so they can have it in their organizations as well. Well, my story is similar in the sense that, I, you know, we've been talking about shame and worthlessness and I came out of my family of origin with a lot of, we had heavily burdened exiles who, because uh, I wasn't a, good student. I, in retrospect, probably had undiagnosed ADD. And my father was a very high-powered physician researcher. Uh, I got a lot of messages from him that I wasn't valuable, that I was lazy. And, um, and so I don't think IFS would exist if I didn't have that background, because all of that motivated a part of me to take over and prove him wrong by developing this. And, uh, and it was a big motivator. I mean, I worked my butt off to bring this. And, and, and at some point, sort of like what Duran was saying, I became the leader of a community. And the part of me that drove me to create it wasn't really good at leading a community because it didn't give a shit, you know, it didn't care what people thought that part because I got a lot of attack as I was bringing this and it had to be armored that way. And, uh, and it really wanted accolades. It really wanted this constant drumbeat of, oh, you're great. You're so great that you've done this. And that was the, one of the big motives to counter the worthlessness. Which again, it's like a bucket with a hole in it. Never, the outs, external accolades don't ever fill it up. And so you just need more and more. And so I was lucky and, and remain lucky to have people in the community who could call me out and do it for themselves so that I, I didn't have to uh, be as defensive as I might have been. And, or, uh, you know, if I'm proud of anything, it's that I listened and I started to work on these parts. And, and so now, to whatever extent people say I'm, I'm humble, it's pretty genuine. Uh, I don't do this for those same motives. I do it much more because of the vision, possibility of what IFS can do to the world. Um, and, and I think, you know, we were talking earlier about uh, what drives a lot of people who seek power or who get into positions of power and, uh, and it is these protectors and, and, and I think a lot of why our country is screwed up is because they're running things and don't have a lot of, uh, self-leadership and, and, 
and it, you know, it works for them because those parts like mine are really good at certain things and can get to high levels of achievement and power. Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm hard pressed to think of anyone who started a business or an organization that wasn't parts or manager led. Yeah. Like I, I'm just having a like, yes, I'm going to like, and, and the work really is, is like these beautiful managers that are doing their job for us and could create something pretty incredible, but it also can do harm. And then the transition, when the leaders start to mature, like you both and heal and grow, like you both named, then start to shift how you lead. And so then bringing it to real time, then for both of you, kind of where your organizations are now. And again, just bringing it back to these cultural legacy burdens, how are you addressing the polarities that inevitably come up um, within your organizations, within yourself as you're leading? Yeah, well, I, I didn't want to imply that I'm, I'm done with that process. <laughs> I just Fair enough. I just met yesterday. Me I just met yesterday with our CEO, Katie, and, and uh, my wife, Jean, was a part of it and our consultants and, you know, tried to plot out the future. And there are lots and lots of opportunities coming now because IFS has gotten very popular. And... And I do have this vision of bringing it to the culture to not just have it be a big part of psychotherapy, but to actually, you know, wouldn't it be cool if it became a kind of replacement paradigm for the way we understood ourselves and the way we related to ourselves? And so that's still, that vision is driving me and I can get way out ahead of the headlights in terms of our uh, what my CEO Katie is trying to do, which is to establish a foundation that, from which we can grow and and hire the, the right people, and so she's pushing back on that part of me a lot. So we did get into that polarization yesterday. Uh, we did really well until it got almost to the end of the meeting, and, um, and that part of me took over, and I it could be very pouty and speak in this, this uh, dripping with, I wouldn't say contempt, but some kind of uh, disapproval. Even though I'm, I'm not saying anything really mean or anything, I'm still, everybody in the room knows that I'm in that part. You know, luckily I'm married to somebody who can call me out. I did. And, and uh, just to say that there are built-in polarizations in businesses and organizations like that one and my wife hadn't been there it could, we could have just left the meeting that way and what a, felt terrible mm. so even though i'm very i've been working on myself for all these years and i'm very aware of my parts i can still have a heart attack like that a heart attack <laughs> oh oh we'll be doing this work till we breathe our last breath That's i right. say that to myself and to everyone i work with that's like baseline uh, but there is an evolution and so thank you for sharing that and it's such a great example of who who we surround ourselves with personally and professionally um who can as Brene says often speak truth to bullshit um with love and respect um and yeah i think that's a great example duran i'd love to hear what's coming up for you right now with where you're at with black therapist rock as you're leading your organization and addressing polarities while navigating the cultural legacy burdens that still 
that are still infecting and impacting your community? Yeah, I think my biggest challenge is materialism as a nonprofit leader. (laughs) Nonprofits have to go out and, you know, beg for money and (laughs) work, you know, show our worth and and, um, prove our prove our worth a lot. I feel like hustle for our worth, as Brene says, um, and and show that we're, you know, that we're worthy of the tax deduction, (laughs) you know, like all of the things that come with that. So I feel like nonprofits tend to get exiled a lot. And 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 non things that are, you know, activities in the organization that don't immediately produce uh profit sometimes are pushed aside as not as important or, you know, um not a priority. And I see that a lot when it comes to diversity, equity, and inclusion. Um and for me, I, I stand true on the fact that without people, you don't you don't have profit. Uh, that was why I chose to get my mass, my first master's degree in public administration versus business administration, because I believe without people, you mm-hmm. don't have profit. And so and you can't have progress without people. So taking care of the people and making sure they all have what they need to help you get to the profit is is my number one thing. And so when I go into organizations and they're talking about how much things cost, you know, diversity is expensive or, you know, I, I tell them lack of diversity is mm-hmm. is, is more expensive in my opinion, to your reputation as a business, as a corporation, and as a leader. So I I see these, you know, these polarizations between profit and people, and it it always makes me um, a little frustrated. I have parts around it that are like, don't you see that they're both very equally important? Um, (laughs) But we also live in a world where nothing is free, you know? Um, I had to help my son, my 10-year-old son, understand why we pay for water. Mm. You know, because children are really smart. Like I said, they come to the world with this, you know, this pure innocence and and just being whole, I feel like, and intact. And then they get conditioned into splitting parts of themselves all over the world. Um, but yeah, we, we don't toilet tissue. Someone said you can't even wipe your butt for free. You know, you have to keep the lights on. So <laughs> I I <laughs> acknowledge that leaders are torn between, you know, making the money and doing all that we can, squeezing every drop of energy out of every person to support the mission, um, but also, you know, wanting to care for people in that process. And those are, are two very difficult things to balance. So I, I try to really hard to balance that in my work. I will say as a nonprofit leader, I tend to err on the other side of people versus profit. And um, that doesn't hurt me as much as a nonprofit leader, but it can, even in nonprofits, you know, we have expenses, we have things that we have to pay people, you know, to do the things that we mm-hmm. need done as well. Um, so I've had to really come to terms with what the living in the system that I, you know, operating in the system I live in, if you will, not pretending that these burdens aren't there, um, which I can tend to do sometimes and, and tell myself that it doesn't matter. It definitely matters when you live in the United States of America. Money definitely, you know, yeah. the more money you have in this system, the more access to resources you have. And that's just the system yeah. that we live in. So. Um, coming to terms with all those things on a daily basis, like you said, is the work that I will probably do until I take my last breath. And even these systems and how they're set up, or they kind of set us up to fail in many ways too, and they keep cycling in it too. So it's a tough one. But thanks for naming that. I'd love to dig a little deeper with the both of you too, and hear from you about a time when you made a change, specifically made a change in how you lead in your respective organizations due to shifts in your beliefs and values. That was not received well, and but it was something you had to do because of 
you know, what you felt was right. I'm curious how you navigated the pushback and would you do anything differently as you looked back? Mm. I don't know who wants to go first on that one. So we do an annual IFS training that's predominantly Black with Black Therapist Rock. I have gotten a lot of uh, Black for having, we allow five allies. We have five seats for allies. We have a scholarship for five Black men, but we also have five allies in the room with us. And then it's, you know, all the rest is BIPOC. And I have been so adamant to that because of my personal mission statement about passion for diversity, but also dedicated to unity. We don't live in a segregated mm-hmm. world. You know, I want for every Black therapist who wants a therapist, I want them to not just only have Black therapists available who can see and hear them, but I want other people and other bodies to be able to see and hold space for them as well. There aren't that many Black therapists in the world, so we're going to need other therapists to have those skills. Mm-hmm. And I think that we do that best in working together around all of these parts and community with these parts. I also think that corrective experiences can't happen if we're all divided in in separate silos. You know, I I need to be with other people to have that corrective experience in my system and to know what it feels like for something different to happen, for unity to be present and to notice when it is, when someone is, you know, in it with me versus me continuously fighting every white person, every white body person that I come across or mistrusting every white body person because of the body that they that they, they operate in. So I've gotten a lot of uh, criticism for that, you know, for that big mission that I have and that big vision. But I I stand on it so, you know, wholeheartedly. I really stand on it mm-hmm. um, because that's the, that's the future that I want to see in the world. You know, I want to create the world that I want to see. So uh, the way that I've been able to work with the, the, you know, the criticism is to hear it to acknowledge the validity in it when people, when, you know, people of color say it's really hard to do our work in front of white people. I acknowledge that that is true and that people have died trying to do that, that it's a very real fear and it will always be there if we're not brave enough and we don't have enough courage to move beyond those fears and to, to operate from self. Um, so I, I'm fierce about this this vision and this mission. It's, it's extremely important to me that we operate in this way. Um, and I, I just, I, Brene also says gritty faith and gritty facts, you know. Uh, <laughs> I have faith that the world will be less racist one day. Uh, I, and I have to have that faith and I have to believe it every day because I'm raising a black, a soon-to-be black man. So that's what keeps me going, you know, having your values, knowing what you value. My values are legacy laughter and learning. And the the value of legacy, it drives most of what I do, you know, and the fact that we're talking about legacy burdens now and so much of my work is about legacy and legacy burdens and legacy gifts. We don't talk enough, I yes. think, about legacy gifts. There, Through all of the civil rights movements, through all of history, there has always been all kinds of people who've come together, despite racism, despite gender, despite class, despite sexual orientation, people have come together to support one another in human rights. And I think that that's extremely important if we want to have the legacy gift of collective wisdom and community. Mm. Thank you for sharing that, Taryn. I didn't know about some of those choices that you made in BTR. I heard, and I've heard about the the frustration or concern around it. So that, I just feel that in my body, um, the truth and the and the love and the commitment to that. So thank you so much uh, for sharing that. How about you, Dick? How would you respond? Well, first, I want to thank you also, Duran, because, uh, you know, I have known about some of the pushback and we wouldn't probably 
have the level of collaboration we have without you standing strong that way. So yeah. I'm very grateful. And it's it's been so enriching for, I think, both communities, but for sure for the IFS community that we have this uh, collaboration. So one example would be uh, with the pandemic, we couldn't do in-person trainings anymore. And so there was a feeling like this won't, the trainings won't work online. You have to be together and feel the safety in the room and self-energy in the room. And so a lot of the trainers uh, had a lot of trouble with my and, and some of the other leaders' position on that, which was that let's try it, you know, let's just see. And it turns out that in some ways it can be better, actually. Uh, but, you know, we had to really stand strong and without shaming anybody, just really push for the, them to give it a shot. And, and I have to say that some traders didn't go for it and, and cut way back on the level, the number of trainings, because what, what I've heard is that while the students really like it, they like being able to do it from home and. You know, as you and I are looking at each other, you can see even in a training, you're way across the room when there's a demo happening. You don't really see the person doing it. But when it's like this, you can really get a feel for what they're going through. And uh, But it's, it isn't as enjoyable for the trainers to do it online. So just a lot of the negotiations back and forth. And uh, that that's the that's one that came to mind. Yeah, I appreciate you naming that. And I've heard that being in trainings, obviously, before the pandemic. And then since the pandemic, I've I've been able to actually do a lot more because I've got a family and I've been able to say engage in a lot more. And I've heard the feedback from the participants um, that they've been able to afford the training yeah. because they didn't have to pay for travel. So accessibility and and also acknowledging like there's a couple of trainings I've been in this fall where I'm like, ah, I wish we could all just hug each other, you know, yeah. so missing some of that real human connection, but sitting with the tensions that isn't just about me, but reaching, continuing to further your mission. Um, and then some trainers I've heard, they're like, they will constantly repeat, oh, I wish we were in person or, mm-hmm. you know, work, you know, hybrid working, you name it. That's a really interesting uh, polarity too that's happening real time. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Um, I'd love for you both to talk about your definition of success and how it's changed from when you both respectively founded, you know, Internal Family Systems and the IFSI and BTR to today. Yeah. In the military, success was all about trophies and awards. And I have a whole lot of those. (laughs) I look at my uh, bookcase sometimes and I'm just like, wow, you know, once upon a time, that was my my whole existence was striving to be validated and to to be seen, you know, professionally. Um, And especially Mm -hmm. as a black woman, I, I like to honor those parts of me that feel like I needed to be twice as good or work twice as hard, you know, to get half as far. Um, and, and I w- looked up, you know, when I retired 35 <laughs> with two master's degrees after spending all these decades in the military. Wow. And I realized that those parts had been working so hard that they could even take time to appreciate what had mm-hmm. been accomplished. So with Black Therapist Rock, I started off kind of that way. Like, let's just do a whole lot of stuff and show the world that we're capable and we're, we're here. 
Um, and now I've learned to really slow down and savor some of these experiences and really reflect on them and be in community with folks in a real present way. Um, and I think that that's, that's just more, you know, more self-energy on boards. The more I work on my parts that, that think they need external validation, that need to hustle for their worth, the more I'm able to um, just be in my body and 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 be in the world, really, be in the moment, be in experience, be with my son, be with people, be with myself in my quiet time, um, which I never I never had the luxury or privilege of that before. And now, you know, I'm I just turned 40 this year and I feel like my body is slowing down, you know, like I don't have a thyroid. My thyroid was removed about three or four years ago. Hmm. And so everything in me is about slowing down now. It's like you can't continue to go at that pace. And one of the things that I've realized, realized in teaching Dare to Lead as a Dare to Lead facilitator, we had the saying in the military, we would say, don't eat your young. You know, don't eat your young because, you know, you're, you need to be a mentor and you need to have a mentor. You need to have people that mm -hmm. are going to replace you and you need to see someone that you want to replace because everybody's going to be replaced, you know, at some point. Um, and so when we eat our young, there's no one to replace us. But when we invest in the the next generation of leaders, we have lots of people who are ready and you know equipped with the skills that that we've learned, and we're able to change to share that the, that generational wisdom or that that those legacy gifts and that um, that you know the things that just keep on growing and going is what I say. So just taking time to invest in other people while investing in myself, <laughs> so that I have something to invest. Um, has felt really important as I'm shifting into more of my leadership capacities. Thank you, Duran. Yeah. Um, congratulations on turning 40, Duran. I, when I turned 60, they said 60 is the new 40 and it kind of felt that way. And now that I've, I'm over 70, you know, 70 is just fucking 70. <laughs> it's just old. So. <laughs> No trophies for 70. <laughs> no. But in terms of the question, um, yeah, in, in addition to what I already said about my motives, about, you know, accolades and so on, uh, initially, uh, to, to give the whole story, my father, again, being head of medicine, this big, this big medical center, got me a job when I was in college on a psych unit for adolescence. And... I would get very close to these kids and I would be in the day room when their families would come to visit and I would see the families scapegoating the hell out of them. And then I would hear about their psychoanalytic sessions where the families were, were not even mentioned. And I thought, there's got to be a better way to do this. And so my initial motives were around changing psychotherapy and healing. And uh, that led me to family therapy which then, you know, led me to the parts work. And so for many, many years, uh, and particularly when I ran into what we call cell as just beneath the surface and, you know, has all these wonderful qualities and can, knows how to heal. Uh, I, I, my, my eyes were on the prize of changing psychotherapy. And then as, that started to happen, and um, the shift lately in my guidance lately has much more been to, as I said earlier, to 
expand the goal to changing the paradigm. With that shift in paradigm would come changes at all levels of culture. Change all those legacy burdens, those four legacy burdens and others we talked about, and uh, would change political dialogues. And so my, my goals these days are to, you know, like we were talking about that United America co company, are to partner with people who can bring us to higher levels of system. So we, you know, we started, we piloted trainings for executive coaches and for so we start, we're going to start a training for social activists. And so, you know, having an impact at that level now, now that I am in my seventies and I, well, maybe I have 10 more active years, maybe more, we'll see. Uh, that goal has really, really broadened enormously for me. And, mm. and that's part of why I got into Acadia's because again, I, maybe I've got 10 years and <laughs> I really want to get, to take this as far as I can before I stop. Mm. Thank you for that, Dick. Yeah. I don't know. I'm convinced that we're all going to be living a little bit longer and more vitally. That's, that's my hope as we, and, and this work is going to help us be able to do that. Um, thank you. Thank you both for this conversation. I feel like there's so much follow-up I'd want to do, and this, this could be a whole day workshop. Um, Dick and Duran, thank you so much for taking the time for this conversation. It's one I've wanted to have for a long time, and I know you both have full schedules. So really, it's been an honor. Um, this is a really rich conversation. I know many listening are going to get a lot out of it. And so just really grateful to know you both, grateful for your impact, not only on my life, but on so many. So this was, this was a real honor. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for having us. Yeah, it's always great to talk to both of you guys. If you grew up in Western modern culture, especially here in America, you probably carry the burden of individualism. And individualism blocks our capacity to lead with vulnerability. It also blocks our ability to experience intimacy. Now, today's powerful conversation with Dick Schwartz and Duran Young brought to light the impact of the cultural burdens of racism, sexism, consumerism, and individualism on all of us, whether we're aware of this impact or not. And they noticed how focusing on addressing the cultural burden of individualism is a powerful and impactful place to start in addressing them all. So I'm curious, what did you grow up believing about yourself if you struggled? And how do you think individualism impacts how you lead today? And what comes to mind when you reflect on denial being the opposite of clarity? Yes, the cultural legacy burdens discussed in today's episode are big topics that, to be honest, many turn away from. But leaders like you who dare to lead in ways that further dignity, healing, and community are up for the challenge. And this is the work of an unburdened leader. Thank you so much for joining this episode of The Unburdened Leader. And if this episode impacted you, I'd be honored if you went ahead and left a review, a rating, and shared it with someone who you think would benefit from it. You can find this episode, show notes, and ways to sign up for the free Unburdened Leader weekly email, along with ways to work with me at www.rebeccaching.com. 